Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. With so much going on in this world and in our very lives that seems so completely out of our control, it's essential that we live those lives, if I might quote Isaiah, ever and always seeking the Lord while he may be found. That's the subject of today's message, which is based on Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 9, and Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. The message is entitled, With the Lord, and it begins with a question that I'm guessing that every single one of us has asked at one time or another. What did I ever do to deserve this? I suspect that there are very few among us, if any of us, who have not, if not allowed, then at least under our breath, asked that particular question, right? To be sure, it usually happens in moments when we're caught up in a long and motionless traffic jam on I-93, or else when we're on an airplane or on a bus ride and we found ourselves seated next to an incessant chatterbox, a crying baby, or both. And certainly, to ask ourselves why we deserve such a fate is the stuff of, of simple human frustration and utter impatience. And we all know that generally passes, though if we're being honest, oftentimes it's followed by another inner voice statement like, Maybe if I keep my eyes shut here, they'll think I'm asleep. Or, the granddaddy of them all, my child will never do that. <laughs> Which, trust me here, almost always an ends up a prime example of the danger of false prophecy amongst new parents. All that said, though, we kid around a bit, but I also suspect that for most, if not all of us here, there have been other times when that question, what did I ever do to deserve this, takes on a much more serious tone. I'm thinking, for instance, of children and youth whose parents are divorcing and, and end up blaming themselves for that which happened with their mom and dad. I'm thinking about women and men who have been forced to flee an abusive relationship and who know, logically at least, that they were not at fault for what happened and yet continue often for years and years to come to silently harbor the fear that they did something wrong, that somehow they deserve that abuse. There are so many that I have come to know over the years as a pastor People who are dealing with an illness or a death in the family, maybe a natural disaster like a tornado or a storm, any number of life's misfortunes, and immediately have sought to ascribe blame for those things on their own bad attitudes, their behaviors, maybe for even saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it doesn't stop there either, right? Turn on the news any day of the week right now, 
And you find examples of how we even tend to do this as a people. And we do it as a nation. I've got to tell you, one of my clearest and most lingering memories of 9-11 was how that afternoon we'd opened up the church for prayer and reflection. And one of our neighbors at the church, who was not a member of the congregation, but who was a well-known figure in our community, walked into our sanctuary weeping and very emotionally asking aloud, shouting, really, why this attack on America had happened. And the thing was, it was, I guess, at best a rhetorical question because she, he was already coming up with the answers for himself. It was the terrorists, yes. And it was the governments and the leaders as well, both theirs and ours. But, he went on to say through his tears, it was also the fault, he said, of the church for its faithlessness in such uncertain times. It was the fault of God's people not living up to their call, their mandate to be peacemakers. And get this, he went on, again, tears flowing, saying that it was his own fault for his failures as a Christian and as a disciple of Christ Jesus. I truly felt for the man, and I wept with him. But I remember thinking, as though one man's spiritual struggle or one man's personal weakness would have been enough to bring down the Twin Towers. Why would he do this to himself? He was the first of many, as it turned out, who shared that with me. Because truth be told, it is not an uncommon response. You see, what we are talking about here is a, a fairly widely held contention that there is a reason for human suffering. And that reason usually has to do with something bad in the past or the present of the person. Now, we know that there are some things that happen in life that you can ascribe blame to. I'm thinking, for instance, of someone who is a, a drunk, gets behind the wheel, and, and purposely runs into people. Even if it's an accident, they have made a choice to do that. There is a cause to be found. But sometimes you can't find it quickly and easily. And we ascribe blame elsewhere. Theologically speaking, this is called theodicy, which is the question of God's justice which for many is the belief, if I might quote the late Arlen Holtgren of Lutheran Seminary, it is the belief that human suffering is due to divine punishment for sin, or perhaps to some unknown flaw or secret misdeed. Now, you and I know, logically, that such an explanation might seem all too simplistic, and it might well be, as sometimes I am wont to say, bad theology. But in the face of human confusion amidst impossible situations, it is our quick remedy to explain things like illness and death. But here's the thing, friends. Here's the point of both of our texts for this morning. As it turns out, this is not ultimately the answer we're looking for. And when all is said and done, it is most definitely not the answer that we need. 
In our text for this morning from Luke's Gospel, Jesus is being asked about a recent tragedy that had occurred involving some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We don't know much about the exact set of circumstances that Luke refers to here, except that it appears to refer to a massacre of a group of Galilean pilgrims in Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman governor. And in that the blood of the victims was being mixed with the blood of temple sacrifices, it was not only an act of heinous violence, it was also a sacrilege. So there was that. And moreover, at about the same time, apparently there had been a structural collapse. Without warning, and wholly accidental apparently, that this Tower of Siloam fell and it killed 18 people. And so now, in the aftermath of these events, and in the midst of profound grief, people are coming to Jesus and asking what is an understandable, a perfectly legitimate question, the same kind of question that under our own set of circumstances we have asked ourselves. Why? Why would such a bad thing happen to good people? Or rather, Jesus, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Jesus, did this happen? God forbid, Jesus. But did this happen because they deserved it? what's interesting is that Jesus does answer them. But then again, not really. Because according to Jesus, there's a bigger concern at play here. Do I think those murdered Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Not at all. But he goes on to say, unless you repent, you will perish just like they did. Oh, and and those 18 people who died in the tower accident, they weren't any better or worse than your average Jerusalemite. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish just like they did. And there you have it. Not once, but twice in five verses, friends. In the parlance of the King James translation of Scripture, unless ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. At the end of the day, you see, Jesus doesn't really make much of an argument for or against this notion that as regards sin and death, people get what they deserve. Rather, writes pastor and author, the Reverend Dr. Robert Dunham, Jesus seems to want to emphasize that death is always close and not necessarily controllable or explicable. Death happens, Jesus says. It can happen when you're praying. It can happen when you're standing under a wall. It can catch you by surprise. The real question, writes Dunham, is that though you might intend to be repenting of your sin at the end of your life, what's to say that you'll have the time to do so? Basically, you see, 
what happens here is Jesus is changing the narrative. He does that a lot if you read through the Gospels. And boy, he does it here. Yes, he says, horrible, awful things happen. Tragedies occur and good people are made to suffer. Be it at the hands of a pilot, or for that matter, someone like a Vladimir Putin, or because of a bombed out collapsing building. The real question is, stuff happens. The real question is, says Jesus, are you ready for when and how that happens? Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you here that this is not exactly the most warm and fuzzy words that Jesus ever spoke. And for us to hear those words in times such as these, when our daily news is filled with news of death and destruction, to hear Jesus say this, it's, it's difficult. But truthfully, Jesus' words, most especially right now, serve as a reminder that perhaps our most important response in the midst of all the difficulties, all the unforeseen circumstances we face in this life is to be sure that we are with the Lord as we're facing them. But here's the thing that Jesus also wants us to know. As a whole lot of commercials are wont to say, act now, because this offer and your life might end without notice. To make that point, Jesus then goes on to tell a parable that underscores the reality of God's judgment and the need for repentance. It's the story of a fig tree, a fig tree that is not producing any fruit and how the landowner, having grown impatient with the lack of a proper harvest, decides to cut the tree down. But the gardener, gardeners being who they are, argues otherwise. And he says, let's just give this fig tree another year. I'll dig around it. I will fertilize it. And maybe it will produce next year. If it doesn't, then chop it down. And so it will be for us, says Jesus. God is not about to be giving up on us so quickly. Robert Dunham again. There's hope in this parable. Don't cut the tree down. But there's also urgency. Give me one more year and then we'll see. Now I know there's a real temptation for us to speculate in this passage whether Jesus is talking about you and me individually and there's a case to be made for that or if he's talking collective judgment in this very dark and sinful world in which we live. And admittedly, as my neighbor sought to do in the aftermath of 9-11, these are understandable questions for us to ask. It's who we are to ask such questions. But ultimately, you see, such questions miss the point. What Jesus wants us to remember here, or at least I believe this is what Jesus wants us to remember here, is that our time in this life, our time on this earth is finite. And as the saying goes, we can't keep putting everything off till tomorrow 
what we can do today, right now. Or if I can draw a verse out of our Old Testament text for this morning, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You know, it occurred to me this week that that particular verse from Isaiah is one that I quite often read at cemeteries, but specifically as a call uh, to worship at the service of committal, which traditionally happens, as you know, at the end of a funeral or a memorial service. Usually it takes place at the, seminar, at the cemetery, but not always, of course. But it is the moment when we commend the body or the ashes, but always the spirit of the deceased to the eternal care of God in Jesus Christ. It is meant as an act of closure for us. It is our time of saying goodbye, or as I very often like to remind us all, for the longer version of that word, God be with you. To say God be with you to that person we've loved, for whom we are grieving, and to say it to one another in our grief. But what I noticed, you see, and the reason I'm speaking to you about it now, is when I opened this part of Isaiah, is this verse, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. It's actually the climax of a whole series of verses that you heard Kay reading earlier. Verses that call for everyone who thirsts to come to the water. Verses that tell us that all of God's people ought to eat what is good and delight themselves in rich food. In fact, you may have noticed, and I love this about this passage, is the very first part of this section of Isaiah begins with the word, Ho! Which roughly translated means, well, Ho! (laughs) Actually, what it means is, is, Hey there! Listen up! If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, hey, there's a buffet table waiting for you. Pay attention, Isaiah says. Incline your ear. These are the words of the Lord. Come to me, Isaiah says. Listen so that you may live, because I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And I might add, a steadfast and sure love for you, for me, for us all. And I'll tell you, I read that verse all the time at services, but I got to tell you, when I put it in that context, I understood, I think, better than I ever have before, why we say that verse together. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why we say that in a graveside. Because when you are in a place like that, when you are surrounded by the fragility and the finality of human life, when you are there amongst row upon row of tombstones that remind us of the end of all things, what we need to remember above all else is that in all of life, through death and beyond to life eternal, We have never been, we are not, and we shall not ever be alone. That we are ever and always with the Lord. And that we are the recipients 
of those sure and certain promises of our God made real to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to know we're not alone. And here's the good news. That's the good news, according to Jesus. It's a good news of grace. And yet at the same time, it is good news that is meant for us to hear and answer today. Now. This is the time. Now is the time to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. To truly receive the presence of the Lord with us always. It is the time to turn around. To return to God. To receive his mercy. Metanoia. The word in Greek that we translate as repentance. It is the time to come to God who will abundantly pardon. The time to repent is now. Just something to consider, something which to pray about, beloved, as we go forward in this week. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, With the Lord. It was recorded during our March the 20th service of worship at East Congregational Church in Concord, New Hampshire. Where, by the way, we gather for worship each and every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road. Now, if you're visiting New Hampshire this springtime, looking for a place to worship, or if maybe you're looking for a church home, we would love to welcome you here. I think you'll be glad you came. And with that, we come to the close of another episode of this Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I do thank you for listening today. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.